Hello, Hardcore Financial listeners. Welcome back. It's been a little bit since we've had a guest on, um, but we're very excited to have Rob Frosca here, who's a serial entrepreneur, um, has sold a bunch of companies, one into Nielsen, which I have some background in. But mostly, Rob is a lot in fintech now. Rob, I'll let you do your own background, but we're very excited to talk to you because we're going to do a 2021 recap of crypto and look ahead to 2022. I know right now you're very focused on crypto, uh, you run a VC fund, but give us a little bit of a background about you and then we'll just jump right in. Yeah, sounds good. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been doing tech now for shit almost uh, 30 years. Uh, I started the very first financial service, believe it or not, on the internet way back in 1993. I was at Carnegie Mellon getting my MBA internet was happening and I saw the internet and it was just, uh, you know, I got to do something here. So we actually put the very first uh, commercial stock quote server on the internet. I negotiated with Morningstar and S&P, uh, put Charles Schwab and over a hundred financial institutions. And I sold that company when I was 29. It was acquired by Bill Campbell and Scott Cook of Intuit. And I moved out to Silicon Valley. I did a lot of their internet strategy there uh, at Intuit. And then uh, went back to Pittsburgh. I was sitting on the board of an AI company called Wisewire and went back there to um, to get you know back into the startup thing. And we started one of the very first AI companies. And that company was acquired by Lycos. If you remember Lycos, most people don't. It was the number two search engine at the time. This was right around 1996. I remember it well. Yeah, we, that ages me. <laughs> I was using the yeah, internet back yeah, then. I know. I'm in my 50s. So, you know, my, son's, my son is like 26 and he's like, glucose? What the hell is Lycos, you know? Uh, but, uh, you know, we took it public and then we sold it to Telefonica for almost $6 billion, which was uh, a wild ride. And then I did another company, which was acquired by Nielsen. So, and another one and another one, I did another one that was uh, voice over IP. So I've been doing tech companies now for almost 30 years. And I got the, uh, I got the religion on blockchain, uh, I want to say five, six years ago. We have a venture fund called Cosmo Ventures. There's four partners, uh, three other guys, all serial entrepreneurs. Uh, Ken Lang, uh, our CTO, is one of the guys I did a company the, that that AI company with. He's one of these polymaths out of Carnegie Mellon, you know, five to ten degrees, you know, uh, and he kind of you know started showing us Bitcoin. I would say six. I you know I lose track of time. Seven years ago, eight years ago. And we we were buying Bitcoin at that point. And when I saw blockchain, I just I I was converted. So we created a venture fund called Cosmo X. It's a tokenized fund. It's a security token. Uh, Securitize, uh, we were their first paying customer. It's, I think we're the only evergreen fund. So we're always, it's open-ended. There are a bunch of other uh, closed-end funds, uh, Spice and Blockchain Capital, a few others, but I think we're the only uh, open-ended one. So we're, we're very much into blockchain. And one of the things that I say all the time is I, and I, you know, our, all my partners and I, we always kind of, we always kind of sit back and say, man, I've seen this movie before. Uh, I've seen it. I've been in it. I know how it's going to end. And um, this is happening all over again. And I, I say all the time, I say, I, I personally believe that blockchain 
with with no hyperbole here, I believe that blockchain is the single largest value creation event in our lifetime. And bigger than the internet, bigger than mobile, just it's it's going to be huge, absolutely huge. So that's a little bit of my background, a little long-winded, but uh, I, I love everything blockchain and uh, I'm all in. That's fantastic. And, and you raised a really good point. I also believe, Alex and I, I think also really believe that this invention is, is very, very foundational to, uh, to humanity because basically we've never been able to kind of agree on stuff in a decentralized way. And if you think about like the implications of that, you know, so many of our societal structures exist just because we haven't been able to agree uh, on stuff just in general. So yeah. when you say the value that's going to be created, do you have any uh, thoughts on like how much of that value is just like the monetary value of like, for example, something like Bitcoin, which is like the, the monetary layer. Then you have like all the smart contract layers on top and all of the others identity. Like, do you have any thoughts on like how this value will be distributed among different projects or, or is it too soon to say? Well, when you, when you think about it, I, I was, you know, if you take a step back, all this is is really a progression, you know, and, 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 you know, the early days of the internet was really, you know, the internet, look, the internet was designed to be a resilient network to survive nuclear attack. Mm -hmm. That's why it was designed. And the first phase of the internet was really just about kind of decentralizing content. And that's, that's the first company I did. It was called net worth. And it was about decentralized distribution of financial content. And so, you know, we went from a world where there was ABC and NBC and CBS and PBS. And I used to get my news, for, you know, watch TV on four stations. We went from that world to this, you know, massive distributed world or decentralized world of content where anybody can be a content producer. And then the kind of the next phase of it was really around communication, you know, voice over IP. Uh, I did a company in voice over IP. It was sold to Unity. You know, you go on Sony PlayStation and you and you you're playing Fortnite and you're smack talking the 12 year old that you just killed. Uh, that's using Vivox, which was part of Unity, which is a company we did. And then you know, and then the next phase of the internet was really about commerce, e-commerce, right? All of a sudden, anybody can sell anything. You know, my wife sells antiques on Etsy uh, and and eBay, right? Uh, starting selling Pez dispense collection, right? So so we've 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 kind of got this this progression of decentralization but you said it our entire society is based on central trust centralized trust and now all of a sudden we've got this technology that allows us to basically decentralize the whole concept of trust and move it to i i was i, I love this book by not now ferguson he is called the tower in the square or the square in a tower i always get it mixed i up, love but, that book yeah right yeah, it's basically about how we've gone from these kind of hierarchies, these central points, to this town square, which is networks. And so that's what blockchain really is. So you ask me, why is it so big or do I believe it's going to be cryptocurrency or all of those kinds of things? I think that anywhere – look, our society is created by what? Interest institutions of trusts. If I don't know you and you don't know me, what do we do? We put a bank in between, right? Or we put a broker or we put a, a Department of Motor Vehicles to, to prove that I'm Rob Frasca or some kind of central institution or a government or whatever. And now all of a sudden, we've got to reconstitute that in a network and get rid of the middleman and create more resilient kind of distributed trust. So that's why anywhere there's trust in the fabric of our society is going to be essentially cre recreated or redone or or um, re-implemented, if you will, on a network. 
And so, yeah, so it's not just, it's not just uh, currency, uh, it's, it's identity, uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, the whole NFT thing is really digital rights management. I can't stand, they call it NFTs, right? So, so it's all about decentralized digital rights management. That's huge in itself. That that's got how many trillions of dollars is that? So, so when we look at it, I think we, we kind of broke it down into six, six different areas and, you know, and you can break it down into 20 different areas, whatever is manageable for you. Uh, but I think it's just for, for us, it's really looking at how does this technology change various institutions of trust? And then, and then what are the projects or what are the companies or who are the people, who are the entrepreneurs that are solving the problems around those specific areas? Uh, last time I checked, for instance, identity, you mentioned identity. Last time we checked, I think there's like 42 companies or projects doing stuff in identity. Um, who's, who's going to be the winner? Are, is there going to be one winner? How does it, you know, how does it play out? Uh, it's, it's hard to say. It's a long-winded answer, but I really think that this is really, uh, that's why it's so big because it's kind of the value layer. It's the trust layer of everything we've just built for the last 30 years. Uh, and that, that to me is, is just pure alpha from an investor perspective. Let me follow up on that. We, Shimon and I, and you share a lot of the same, um, a lot of the same perspectives. We completely believe in it. We were almost triple leverage than it, uh, regular leverage <laughs> and career leverage. Um, you know, we, we kind of jumped right in. It still seems to me though, that a lot of the traditional finance, the, the, the world, there's two themes that I think they don't understand. And I'd love to explore with you. One theme is regression to the mean. And I think the traditional financial world does not understand exponential scaling, even though we're always exponentially scaling. So everyone thinks we're going to regress to the mean, regress to the mean. And I think the other one is, you know, they still see crypto or Web3 um, or removing of the centralized party layer as a partly get rich quick scheme. Right. And all these things are just popping up in value. And it's almost like in a bull run, you can't go wrong about where you put your money. So can we talk about those two things? Um, again, your when you judge investments, do you think about regressing to the mean? Is that even a realistic um, a realistic metric to to uh, manage towards? And the secondly, if you don't, right, if you don't, how is it that every, every, all these projects are getting money? I mean, definitely some are shit coins and, and uh, I've seen a lot of my profession of, uh, in my day-to-day -day of shit coins. But why is there so much alpha to go around? You know, you talk about being early. Why is it the case? Yeah, so, so uh, there's a bunch of questions there. Uh, let me start with the first one. So, I, you know, we, we're, we're a fund, right? So we're always out raising money and I'm always talking to institutions. And in the early days, I would go to family office events or I'd go to institutions. A true story. I go to a bank to, to talk about blockchain and they literally kicked me out of the room when I started talking about Bitcoin. OK, so so the, the, the thing that I hear a lot from a lot of institutions, because they just don't get it right, is they go, I like this this blockchain stuff, but this crypto is crazy. I don't I don't agree with the crypto. And I always take a step back and I say, wait a minute, guys. What we're talking about here is the business model of blockchain. 
right? When you, when you think about the tower or the centralized banking model, the, the banking world or the tr centralized trust world, right? I'm making that, that kind of tower symbol. How does the tower get paid? How do these guys get paid? The business model is real easy. There's one guy getting paid a transaction fee. That's it. When you take that model and all of a sudden you put it onto a network and you got to incentivize that network to do things or not do things, you have to create an entire different business model or payment infrastructure. And that's what crypto is. So, so you can't have one without the other. If I'm going to create, you know, these, these, these consensus networks, then I have to create some kind of payment rail to pay everybody on those, on those networks. So, I believe that the institutional market is now starting to figure that out. I think that they're starting to realize that, holy cow, the business model of these trust infrastructures is really around the value of the network. And the value of the network is how many people are on it, what's the velocity, what's the value stored. Like you have to go from this kind of P to E, you know, price earnings ratio valuation model to network models. Now, now you you mentioned the other thing, exponential regression to the mean, averages, all of these kinds of things. Human beings just don't think exponentially. They can't. It's just not in our brain to do it. Okay. Yet, how do networks grow? exponentially now figuring out what the exponent is that's the magic okay but we know it's it's still growing exponentially so if i've got this payment rail that is kind of a proxy for the value payment mail meaning token meaning crypto if i've got that as a proxy for the value of my network and my network is growing or not or there's a lot of value in it that and it's growing exponentially then I, I have to kind of think about where this is. The problem is, is that because it's, exp look, I saw, you know, you mentioned the other thing, get rich quick scheme, all that kind of stuff. You know what? The early days of the internet was the same thing. Okay. There was a dot-com bubble. I was part of it. There was pets.com, anything.com. And the thing went crazy. All right. And then the bubble popped. And then where are we at now? We're, we're at 510X now, what, what that was. You know, most, most, you know, life after, you know, most of my world was prior to Google even being formed. And most people, you know, most people don't realize Google was number 12. I know I'm, I'm talking about a lot of stuff here, but if this is kind of early internet days and it's growing exponentially, then um, it's not get rich quick. It's, we have to think about different ways of valuing what we're doing. So that's what we try to do as investors. What we try to do in investors is number one, figure out where are we in the cycle early Two, um, understand the value of what's being created from a network perspective, not from a uh, company perspective, uh, not from a priced earnings perspective, but an overall network growth and then make bets on a full kind of ecosystem of how this technology uh, plays out. Yeah, I mean, you, you raised some points that are really important for our listeners uh, to understand. And we even had an episode, uh, Alex and I, where we discussed why looking at PE ratios is not really informative. Uh, I, you know, I'll never forget, I think I've, I've said this story um, on, on the podcast before, many episodes before, but 
when Alex and I were at Kellogg, uh, Facebook was just uh, about to IPO. And our accounting professor, which was one of the best accounting professors in the country, uh, d- did a lunch and learn of like, can you justify a $33 billion valuation for Facebook? And he started looking at all these financial, because that was the, the initial right. IPO. He started going through all these financials and he's like, you know, this doesn't really make sense because like something like this has never existed. And he showed comparable companies, right? Uh, and it just doesn't make sense. What he didn't understand is that a network like Facebook has literally never existed before. So of course, when something like that IPOs, the, the dry financial metrics you will see will be stuff that never existed before. Same, same things with uh, people uh, that talk about the stock market right now. And they're like, oh, it's so overvalued because we've never seen price to equity, uh, yeah, PE ratios like that. And Alexander was talking about this. A PE ratio is basically just an expectation of like growth in the future. And like, does anybody have a problem with saying, you know, the companies that currently comprise the stock market are growing much faster than companies a hundred years ago? Like, I don't think that's controversial. So then why do people have, you know, it's, it's this bias of like trying to explain the, the, the present with the past. Uh, and I right. think that's like, it, it, that's why many people lose out on alpha. So that leads me to the question to you. Uh, what do you think is, is kind of the, the least well understood uh, aspect of crypto uh, by traditional investors or by like kind of the average, you know, the average investor out there, whether it's institutional or retail, like where, where do you think uh, people get something wrong? I think I think it's what we just talked about. I don't think the average crypto investor understands what the what the value of the network is that's being built. So, you know, what is the value of the network and the people on the network and the nodes in those networks and the amount of trust that's being uh, performed or the number of trades that are being cleared or the transactions that the contracts how how fast is that network growing? I don't think a lot of I think a lot of crypto traders they look at the tech, or they are speculative. They're looking for you know a lot of quick alpha, uh, and I you know I don't think that they really are internalizing what does it mean for this network to truly be at scale? How valuable will it be, and how much value can that network create? And I think that's the biggest, uh, you know, misunderstanding uh, out there. I'm starting to hear more and more. I I did a podcast the other day uh, with a gentleman. I can't I can't remember. uh, And he got it. It was a young guy. He was in his 20s. And man, like he got it. Uh, And it was it was like I was actually surprised because you think most, you know, most time you're you're surprised when somebody doesn't. I was I was just surprised at at the level of, you know, holy cow. These are networks. And so I think that's probably the biggest uh, misunderstanding. You know, look, when we talk about alpha, there, there's, there's two kinds of alpha. There's alpha and alpha at scale. So if you think about an exponential curve, the biggest alpha is actually in the beginning. But there's, no, there's, just, but there's no scale there, right? You might have one, you might have a million dollars of alpha, but you don't have a trillion dollars of alpha. So, you, you, you know, what happens is, is as these networks grow, the, the actual growth rate is the highest in the beginning. But the key to try as an investor is to try to get it where it's at scale and there's liquidity. 
and and you can you can you, you know you're you're managing kind of the liquidity scale aspect of that alpha and i think as investors you kind of have to put yourself in different buckets you know from a venture perspective what we do is we invest in two two asset classes one is we take preferred equity old fashioned venture equity preferred equity you know standard kind of term sheet the other thing we do, because not everything's going to be a network, okay? Uh, but then the other thing we're doing is we're looking for what I would call illiquid early stage tokens. So our idea is if you're getting in early at a relationship level, why not get it when the, you're, you're getting at a much, much, much cheaper price, generally much cheaper than listing price, and maybe it's locked, maybe it's got special provisions, what have you, uh, but it's illiquid. And then, and then, uh, and then, what we'll do is we'll kind of blend that as a as a portfolio. That's kind of the traditional venture model, right? The traditional venture model is illiquid assets. You do a seed, you do an A, you do a B, you do a C, you do a D, and hopefully the thing goes unicorn or it gets sold and it doesn't blow up, and you get liquidity at the end of it. What what we're seeing, you know, so so that's kind of our analogy. Whereas you have hedge funds in the market. Who tend to buy more liquid assets uh, that are more tradable, and they do more trading because there's more liquidity, uh, and so they and they might have uh, they might have an option there. So that's what we're about. I'll tell you, this is a really interesting topic, and it, and it didn't occur to me, quite frankly, until we started getting into this. And and you know I'm I'm a I, you know I, I'm in some venture funds. I get checks in the mail. I'm like, what the heck? Where did this come from? Uh, you know, I, I invested in that fund 10 years ago, right? And, and you know, because the typical venture fund is you're locked up for 10 years, you're, you're investing for five, you're harvesting for five, and then there's some, you know, there's some um, extensions on the back end of it, right? And so, so because of that kind of blind pool lockup, what you have is there's not too many people that want to be in venture capital unless you've got some big money and you're an institution. So what we try to do is tokenize our fund so that, it's not you're not locked up and so that you can get in this. But to my point, the thing that happened to me was all of a sudden I realized and this is key. And I didn't I didn't I I, I observed it. It wasn't something I kind of went, huh? Uh, and that is this this stuff gets liquid fast. So so the traditional venture timeline, right, the average the average deal to exit across 17,000 funds in the fund database of venture capital is like 4.6 years. I think the average time to unicorn status is like nine years, maybe eight, 10 years, somewhere in that time. I don't know the exact number. And the average time to actual getting liquidity on unicorn is out past 12. This stuff that, you know, these projects, these things we're doing, man, they're getting liquid in, in a year, two years, and they're getting liquid at crazy, at crazy valuations. Maybe not with like ultra super liquidity, like, you know, I'm going to be able to go, I got to go sell $20 million of it at a drop, but I'm still getting some kind of liquidity in the market. So that's an interesting thing. I'm holding long, I'm holding, I'm holding shorter. I'm getting liquidity faster. And then I've got to think about what happens once it becomes liquid. Do I hold on? Do I sell? Do I recoup? So all of a sudden, as a venture capitalist, I'm thinking about things that I wouldn't say normal kind of traditional early stage venture capitalists are thinking about. I think so, 
Well, this is what I love about the space, actually. It's that it cre it moves fast, not only because it's in its prime innovation period, but because That's there's right. so much liquidity. I mean, again, theoretical liquidity. A lot of it is That's paper right. liquidity, but there is enough liquidity to go around that projects just have to constantly compete on innovation or else the, the investor is going to go next. And that yep. forces an even faster and an even more virtuous innovation cycle. Just, you know, again, this is something that she and I talk about a lot on the pod, but when we think about FinTech, you know, for over the last 20 years, if we're honest with ourselves, there is not a lot of innovation there. There's UX innovation. There is some maybe business model improvement around the edges. There's nothing like an Olympus DAO that says, hey, we're going to create a stable and you're going to have a share right? A locked share that's going to rebase automatically three times per day. But, or there's nothing like a even DeFi 1.0 that said, hey, we'll forget market makers. We'll create liquidity pools and it'll automatically make the market. And by the way, never go down. And by the way, do 5 billion per 24 hours in volume. I mean, that is a fundamental step change in innovation yep. that's never been there before. And that, that's just super, it's super exciting. It creates pure competition. Ultimately, when you have pure liquidity uh, in, in maybe academic terms, right? when you have pure liquidity or pure competition, people can move in and out as needed. And so projects are forced to keep on innovating. And so, uh, I, I mean, I hope you see the space in the same way as you're looking at, at, at projects and tokens. Absolutely see it in the same way. There's one big important thing I want to I want to emphasize in that. And that is, is that the base, the base, the value base, okay, is growing exponentially behind that. So not only is it ultra competitive, not only are there new solutions being created, but the overall scale of those solutions, because they're joining an already massively growing market, okay, just throws fuel on the fire. And, and, and so, so, you know, I, I, I like to think of it as if you think about it in terms of just audience base, you know, in the early days of the internet, the internet didn't grow much because the internet was small and it had a pretty small base. Now the internet is huge. And when you put something out there, there's such a large base of people underneath it that are available that it grows much faster. So you need, you need to make sure that you keep that in perspective. Um, as we think about this, if this is really the first inning, right? If you look at kind of standard product diffusion theory, right? You know, I'm a geek from Carnegie Mellon, right? So, you know, the visionary, the 5%, the visionaries come on and they come up with something. Wow, that's cool. There's a lot of alpha there, but a lot of problems. And then the early adopters come in and they're about 10% of the market, 8 to 10%. And they fix a bunch of those problems and then they jump in. And then there's this magic moment right at 12 to 15%. I say this over and over and over again. You jump the chasm into the tornado and you're off to the kind of early majority. I would say that's where we're at. We're at that point right now. By the way, if you play that back to the internet, the Google didn't enter the market until they were around 20 to 30% market penetration. So they were post, they were post visionary, post uh early adopter and and just kind of okay early majority coming in so to to predict that the existing technology that's out there today is going to be the winner they could i'm a big fan of bitcoin so i'm not poo-pooing bitcoin please don't take it that way but odds are that 
you know, the, the majority of the value is going to be is going to be created by something we haven't seen yet. Yeah, that's a fascinating definition. That's exactly a fascinating point. I, I actually think that so I had the privilege of like going through the dot com uh, boom. Uh, I was still in high school, but I was lucky to get an internship at a tech company. And they sent me to yep. New York uh, for like a conference. I remember March 20, uh, March 2000. It was exactly when it started to pop and I was in New York. And I just see so many parallels uh, to, to this market in, in many uh, dimensions. But like one thing you mentioned, uh, I think we're actually more early than the early adopters if you just look at value. Like, yeah, if you count the people, then yes, we're probably at the early adopter stage. But if you count the value, if you draw like the, the curve of the value in crypto, we're way, 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 way early. Because I think most people still have their value in traditional assets, right? Bonds, real estate, stocks, stuff like that. And so uh, it's going to take time for people to understand uh, where this alpha is coming from. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I wanted to ask you, wh where do you think, uh, for example, if, when you talk to people, what is the one thing that most people get wrong about next year? Uh, versus what you believe in? That's that's like a fun question, which is like, you know, uh, there's many things that people agree on that will happen next year. There's many things that people, you know, uh, think they won't happen and everybody agrees that they won't happen. But is there anything that you think like, yeah, it will happen in 2022, uh, but like most people disagree with me on that? Well, I'm, I'm, I, uh, my caveat is, and I said this before, we all suck, okay, as exponential thinkers. Yeah. Doesn't matter, okay, who you're talking to. You look at estimates, and every time you try to estimate or predict how something like a network grows or what it does, um, you're just going to get it wrong because we just, we just don't think that way. And so I, um, I, I, man, I, I got some major you know, I, I've made some major wrong bets. I've made some good bets, but I've made some major wrong bets too in terms of, and it generally comes along at, uh, with timing. So I think generally people get things wrong because they're not thinking exponential. You know, look at DeFi, total value locked in DeFi. If that's not exponential, I don't know what is. Doubles every two months. I think it's beyond that now. That rate is doubling every three months. So, um, so that that to me uh, is 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 uh, wrong. One of the things that I worry about are externalities that I can't predict. Coming back to macro, I just read Ray Dahlia's uh, "Changing World Order." Did you guys read this thing? Um, you know, uh, U.S. is on the downturn, right? He built a model, an AI model with 18 determinants talking about, you know, long-term debt cycles, short-term debt, debt cycles. He said most people don't understand long-term debt cycles because they're outside of the average lifespan of a human. Um, the one thing he doesn't talk about in that book is kind of what crypto could, you know, how, how that could help, um, which I think it could. Uh, so anyway, I guess with us printing money, with the pandemic, with, you know, debt at, the, at a level where, Jesus, how the hell do we ever repay it? Um, the stock market where it is, uh, what happens? Uh, those kind of macro events, um, I think they're going to create a lot. There's a potential for a lot of short-term pain. 
uh, and a lot of value dislocation. So I don't know how all that plays uh, into the broader blockchain crypto verse crypto world. I don't, uh, I think it's a hedge. I, I'm, I'm betting on it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how that's going to play into overall, uh, predictions. Let me, let's stay on macro here. And so I have a two parter. Do you see a correlation or a deeper correlation between uh, crypto and stocks. And then secondarily, we know there's gonna be two, potentially three rate hikes next year. How, when you're talking to institutionals and investors, how are they thinking about crypto as a risk off asset? I mean, again, it goes along with correlation. If you believe you know, the market and crypto are both risk on, you're gonna pull back. If you believe that they're decoupled, you can hedge with crypto. And then maybe, I don't know if you see a difference between crypto and Bitcoin specifically. Like, does Bitcoin still have a special, do people understand the difference between, you know, the Ethereum and smart contract world versus Bitcoin? I mean, they're going after two different TAMs almost. Um, so what's that macro perspective like? Uh, I don't think that most institutional players are even thinking that way. I think the smarter ones are the more pioneering, visionary thinking are thinking that way. You know, Grayscale uh, published some great stuff. I, I always love um, their investor deck, right? They talk about, you know, with a 5%, they do a 60-40, um, you know, traditional portfolio. And then what they do is they show what happens to your uh, return, your risk, your sharp ratio, et cetera. They do a really nice job. And, you know, 1%, 2%, 5%. And I think with a 5% allocation on a 60-40 standard global portfolio, uh, you're going to get a 52% bump in ROI attributed to only 5%. And that and, and, the, and the sharp ratio, I think, goes up, you know, another double. Uh, and so, you know, I, I look at it and they, I look at it and it's like not the question of why should I do this is the question of how the hell could you not Right. You take 5% of your assets and you put it into crypto and you're getting a 52% bump across the board. Uh, that's a note that that's if there's ever a no brainer free lunch, that's it. I don't believe I, I don't believe that um, the average institutions out there uh, are uh, they get it. I don't think they see it. I don't think they realize it. I mean, Ray Dahlia just came out, what, two weeks ago, right before Christmas. Uh, I hate to date what time because on these podcasts, but, um, you know, right before Christmas, he came out and said, um, you know, geez, I think you should have crypto in your portfolio. Uh, again, so I, to answer your question, I don't, the institutions I'm talking to, I, I don't see them there yet. And I think the majority of the reasons why they're not there yet is because they're still waiting for, you know, more regulatory uh, clarity and compliance clarity, which, by the way, that's a whole nother topic. But for me as an investor, I, I actually think that every time there is any kind of regulatory clarity, it's a beautiful thing because that takes more risk out of the system. More capital comes flowing in and, you know, more value to everything that's getting built. So I'm a big fan for regulatory clarity uh, and compliance. I, I'm not a big fan on stupid regulations when they are, you know, not well thought out. But I do think clarity is important. So I I 
I, I, if there is a kind of world debt crisis type of event, um, I, I believe that it's going to crypto is going to get even more attention uh, than it probably already has. Uh, I just don't know how. I don't know how that. I don't know how that. I, I haven't really thought through how that would play out. Yeah, it's, it's great. You? It's, it's, <laughs> well, you thought through I, it? We, we, I'd love to hear what you guys think. <laughs> so we have, I just wanted to say, first of all, uh, hot take here. I disagree with Alex. I think that after the first rate hike, they'll get spooked uh, and, and not do any further rate hikes. I really don't think that with the levels of debt that we have, uh, that they can increase the interest rates in any meaningful way, uh, especially since the one thing that COVID uh, made very clear to me that, that wasn't very clear to me, I, I'm kind of like a macro geek. Uh, I, I really love to nerd out on this stuff. And like the level of coordination between countries on the money printing uh, was really astonishing, right? So like usually you, you, you learn in business school, like traditional international finance. Uh, we had a really good professor, Alex and I, and they're like, yeah, you know, you print money, then your currency weakens, then it's like, it's good for, you know, whatever, import, export. It, but like, what if everybody prints money at the same time? Like nobody has thought of that, like, or at least nobody no. has taught me that and uh it's a very interesting situation where you can just like slowly inflate the debt away and then there's another option i mean if i had to give like my optimistic view right like that's my hot take which i actually think that next year will be very good and we will not have any crisis um like any meaningful crisis like i don't consider basically march 2020 uh, as a crisis because like that's the other thing like they just dumped so much money so fast uh, onto the markets and like bought like corporate debt. It's the stuff that was just like very, very blatant. Uh, and, and they used COVID as an excuse. And so I really think they can keep uh, going with this. And Alex and I also subscribed to Kathy Wood's uh, thesis of like, um, you know, the deflationary nature of, of, um, of technology. And so that could offset a lot of the money printing. So that's kind of the sure. optimistic scenario, which is like you, you keep inflating the money at 10%. And as long as you have, or, or, or 15%, and as long as you have like a, a 12 to 13% like productivity growth together with it, then CPI nets out. There, that's the, that, that's the, that's the big caveat. Exactly. Right there. <laughs> it, that, it all hinges on that, right? It all hinges. It on all that. hinges on that. But on the other hand, like j- just when we think about it, like automation is just like huge, just good old fashioned automation, nothing crazy, like not Boston dynamics. I'm talking about like McDonald's right. putting like, you know, screens where you can order, you know, that stuff yeah. has a lot of room to grow. I think. But, uh, so that's like my take. I think that, uh, that, you know, governance will keep printing money. It'll keep, uh, propping up the assets and but my question is i don't know actually i would love to hear your thoughts on, on what alex asked which is like the correlation between the stock market like I, i'm not so sure about this idea that bitcoin is a hedge uh like i think if the if the system collapses i think bitcoin will suffer uh, but i don't know uh, so, I, I don't have any data I, I, rob before sorry before you answer i want to just to give you give a little bit of my take since you asked and Look, I, I, this is why I disagree with Shimon. I mean, I think they're not going to increase rates by a lot, but you can bump them up 25 basis points at a time, go, you know, to a half to, you know, 0.75 into 1%. It's nothing. I mean, we're still, you know, the market's freaking out from, you know, a more hawkish Fed. That's bullshit. I mean, there's still, there's still quantitative easing. You know, we can even go up to a point, you know, 100 basis points a percent. 
Fed funds rate, who can I mean, like in the grand scheme of things, it's still very low. They're not going to hit 3%. So what, what I think is going to happen, and, and this will happen especially um, if there's a global debt crisis. So you're right. There's been a coordination, right? And so you, when, the, when there's a typical coordination on money printing, there's a flight to safety. Typical risk off is the U.S. dollar. And yep. so I think that if there's a major crisis and they really increase rates, yeah, Bitcoin and everything will suffer. I think ultimately it will recover faster, just like it did, you know, in March 2020, because people now realize what it is and what it isn't. But I think what's going to happen if there is, if there is a major financial crisis in the world, <clears throat> well, here's what's going to happen. Bitcoin will become much more prominent, as will the U.S. dollar via stable coins. Stable coins will be the primary export of the U.S. dollar. We're going to go back to 80 whatever percent of the global reserve, you know, being used in U.S. dollars. And crypto will be the only channel to actually do that. I mean, we, you, Shimon and I talked about it a lot. Shimon had a good point of, you know, stables is a great way to export U.S. values without shedding any blood. Because, you know, everyone in the world wants to go into USDC. We're not right. going to talk about Tether. Uh, we'll leave, we'll leave dirty players unnamed. Um, but, um, but, uh, I actually think this will be an acceleration just like COVID was a tech acceleration. <clears throat> Another financial crisis of the magnitude of 2008, 2009 will expose the current system, how it brings down everyone versus crypto, how it stays resilient. People will ultimately come back into crypto and it will be very painful in the short term and very painful in the short term, but in the long term. It will be crypto, U.S. dollar, maybe a couple other stables, and all the other countries will fall into either the Bitcoin standard or as a store of value and the U.S. dollar as a means of exchange. Because nobody's buying anything with Bitcoin. I, I don't, I'm not a fan right. of all these, oh, new Bitcoin ATMs or accept it here. That's yeah. bullshit. No one's using Bitcoin to buy stuff. No. But Bitcoin no. will be settled, will be the settlement layer. And that's all it needs to be you know, ultimately to be a huge win. And if it's, there's more then it's just a, you know, astronomical win. So anyway, that was my, my take. I do think there'll be, there'll be rate hikes. I don't think they'll freak out, but I think it'll be tiny. You know, you increase by 25 basis points. Ultimately, what do you think? What do you think of, uh, what do you think of China's CBDC? How does that play? I think it's, well, uh, I have to be <laughs> careful about what I say. Right. By the way, in the, in the U S when you talk to people in the U S they don't care, they don't talk about it. It's not a topic of conversation anywhere. You go outside of the U S especially in Asia. That's all they, what do they say? I mean, what can China do with, uh, any CBDC that's programmable by, by any CBDC takes away the if whole China and wanted to create a, uh, create a new global, if you're, I, I'm just throwing this out. I, I don't, yeah. I don't have an opinion. <laughs> I'm going to caveat. Uh, I don't, I, I'm just kind of thinking through it. If you're China and you wanted to create a, um, a global reserve currency very quick, I mean, really make, make your currency a true global reserve currency. How, how would, how would CBDC play into it? And how, how would you game board that out? He, he, here's what my be, thesis. What would be your move? Yeah, here's my thesis. China can do it, right? But <clears throat> any CBDC inherently involves trusting the government. Oh, who makes that CBDC? So whatever Great. your perspective, if you are a big fan of the Chinese government, then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna trust it. If you're not, why would you go into that versus a a stable coin? Let's say that's essentially the same thing as a CBDC. 
And I think ultimately what we've seen crisis after crisis after crisis, whenever there's a global financial crisis, there's a flight to the dollar, right? There's a flight to safety. And so I, I just don't see any non-US dollar, maybe the euro, maybe the Chinese, you know, yuan or the CBDC in their sphere. How of do you influence. think, you know, I, I mean, I'm just trying to think through how does, how does that change? Right. How does that ultimately, you know, and that's that's one of the things that, uh, you know, for instance, Ray Dahlia talks a lot about in this book. Right. His latest book is just how, you know, um, reserve currency status changes. It changes over time and it generally changes in a major debt crisis. And so ultimately. If if that's true, and I'm not saying I I'm not by by the way by any means I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just saying if if that's a possibility and that's true, then how, do, how have, you know it it might make sense to think through how that would happen. So for me, I, I think that basically the the, the whole idea of CBDC uh, is is a little bit of a moot point. The, the important thing is the reserve currency because like a CBDC no. is basically like forcing everybody onto a Venmo and then you can control their spending behavior. You can right. give discounts on, on good things and tax bad things higher and behavior and all of that stuff. But like, that's less uh, exciting to me or, or I don't, you know, some people are really freaking out about it. It's like, Oh, it's going to be a totalitarian state. I'm, I'm less freaking out about that, but the reserve currency, my thoughts are basically throughout history, the reserve currency has always been held by the entity that can project the most power. Uh, and th that's just like unassailable. It was like, you know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the British, then the Americans, right? So, uh, and the yuan is effectively pegged to the dollar, right? So that's what people, I, I don't understand when people say China will do this, China will do that. Like, let's first talk about them breaking the peg and having their own independent monetary policy. And then we can discuss like CBDCs and like, I don't see the dollar going anywhere because like uh, yeah. all of the major inventions of the 20th century have been, and I'm actually very bullish on the US. I, I disagree with Ray Dalio. I think uh, Ray Dalio has this, this uh, brilliant way of analyzing the past. But, uh, but again, they, they fall into this trap of like thinking, oh, this, you know, this cycle has to repeat. Like why, why does it have to repeat? Like, why can't it be like the last cycle was 80 years and this cycle will be 300 years. Like, why? Why? What's so magical about the number eight? Like, I don't get it. Uh, and, and, yeah. and I think the, the idea is, like, just think about it. The major, the major like, uh, technology was created here, like flight, computers, telephone, internet, cell phones, smartphones, right. everything, even DNA, all of that stuff, right? So I don't see any other currency being able to, like, become the, the global now, what you can do is, yeah, you can have some kind of peg to the dollar. I mean, in Israel, what do they do? They're like, okay, we're a small country. We're going to have our rate fluctuate between three shekels to the dollar and four shekels, right? So it's like, if it's above right. four, we're going to buy. If it's below three, we're going to sell. That's effectively a peg, right? So, so I think that right. everybody will converge on the, on the dollar in one way or another. Uh, just because I don't see any other country inventing major technologies and, and taking over. Uh, let, let me yeah. just add one more thing, Robert. I'd love to get your take. Just one quick thing. Uh, we talked about this. I forgot which episode we talked about. But ultimately, if we boil it down to first principles, it's power. And it's kind of the, the ultimate power of, kind of, of good. A country cannot have a reserve currency with capital controls. You just can't. 
because because someone will go to a different country with no capital controls. If you're saying, hey, yeah. I can't exchange my blank money for the Russian ruble, where I can only yeah. unlimited, I'll go to a different currency that I can exchange it, this fluidity, which by the way, crypto ultimately has. And this is why I think the US will never ban crypto. We had this conversation, actually, we should recap, Shimon. We had this conversation almost a year and a half ago or a year ago. Uh, we gotta we gotta bring some of these things back. <laughs> like, but But, U.S. can't ban crypto if they want to stay in the reserve currency in the world. And China, who, who has capital controls, will never be able to see the light of day of having a reserve currency. Because especially in the world of crypto, where you can go from stable to stable, and it's there's liquidity. Rob, to your point early on, you're not going to go to a currency of a country with capital controls versus a country with, no, with less capital controls. Fundamentally, Absolutely. one thing is objectively better than the other, you know? Yeah, I agree. Well, it's a good conversation. <laughs> so now, maybe let's get back to Alpha. Yeah, let's get, let's get back to so we, Alpha here. <laughs> we have five minutes. What do you, let's talk about 2022 and your fund. You know, how, uh, what, what do you see? How do you see 2022 unraveling? Give us the optimistic scenario. Give us some hopium. We want some hopium as the last some episode hopium. of the year. Yeah, look, uh, we, we, uh, we're busy raising money into our fund and growing, doing deals. We're up to around 18 deals. Uh, we've, we've done some great ones. Uh, and I think 2022 is really uh, more uh, flow of value into the system, more institutional players into the system. We just brought on Rochester Institute of Technology into a tokenized you know, blockchain fund. That's huge. Uh, and so I, and, and the kinds of conversations that we're having are with major, you know, massive uh, institutional players. So I think 2022 is really about more early majority institutional players, lots of capital coming in. And I think overall, the market is going to start realizing what we're doing here in terms of building networks. Uh, I'm very excited about um, what's going on with decentralized digital rights management. I don't like calling them NFTs because I don't care about the NFTs themselves. What I care about are the platforms that allow distributed content, uh, you know, uh, developers and creators to get paid. So I, I think that's really what 2022 is, is number one, lots of institutional money coming in. Number two, a lot of these networks coming in to, to create some serious scale. Number three, digital rights management, decentralized digital rights management is what I'm calling about. I think it's going to be big. And then on the DeFi side, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing uh, some major uh, institutions jumping in uh, on the DeFi side to really uh, create a catalyst for, uh, for growth, more growth, more alpha. Ultimately, we're tokenized. So what we're trying to do is really democratize venture capital. And, and one of the things that I'm, there are two things I'm really super excited about. Number one uh, is that uh, this is global. So it's not a Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, US centric approach. It's totally global. That's exciting to me. And then number two, you guys said it in the beginning, uh, th this, this is, you know, 50% of the world, I think, is unbanked and, and it's somewhere between 75 and 85% have a mobile phone, a smartphone. 
this is the technology that essentially allows a huge, huge group of people to kind of come in for and create more productivity and join that, that financial ecosystem. And there's, there's Dow in that there's, there's true Dow in that. And I think that to me is the reason why I get excited about it. And I think that's going to even more, you know, take off, uh, you know, more global, uh, you know, emerging markets embracing this. And that's awesome. Uh, well, before we close, uh, we like to ask our guests for uh, what we call a hot tip for our uh, listeners. It could be a good book to read, a good show to watch, a cool place to visit, a good dish to eat, L literally any tip that doesn't necessarily have to do with finance or crypto. Well, if you're in New Haven, Connecticut, the best pizza on the planet is Pepe's. How's that for a tip? <laughs> Great. It's awesome. So This show know, is sponsored by Pepe's. Pepe's <laughs> on my Pepe's is on my mind. Uh and I would definitely read uh you know that that book by Ray, that latest one. I think that one was definitely uh an opener. And uh, the other one is the, is the older one, Mal Ferguson, The Tower in the Square. I, I, I think he plays it really well. He, he talks about history and how history is really built by networks. Yeah, I just finished Niall Ferguson's uh, Empire, about the British Empire. Oh, my God, this guy is so deep. I, I, and he gets crystal. <laughs> I, he actually wrote an op-ed. Uh, amazing. So, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, yeah it's, it. it's very good. Uh, but in any case, thank you so much, Rob, for uh, coming on yeah, the podcast. On. Can you please tell our listeners where can they find you online? Uh, how can they uh, learn more about your fund? Uh, anything else you would like to share? Sure. I'm on uh, Twitter at Rob Frasca. And our fund is CosmoX.com. C-O-S-I-M-O-X.com. And by the way, we, we called it Cosmo after Cosimo Medici, who was the patron father of the Renaissance and the banking system that we know it back in the 1400s. So we figured as a tribute to the old banking system, uh, as we move into the new one, we'd, we'd call our fund Cosimo. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've been to Florence. I hope that one day San Francisco uh, becomes like Florence. Uh, there you go. <laughs> one day. And this day may never come, but one day we hope. <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, thank you so much, Rob. We'll put all of these descriptions. Uh, we'll put all these details in the show description. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely look more into uh, the fund because like what you said makes a lot of sense, which is like I'm mainly in Bitcoin now, but I definitely want to somehow get the upside of like everything that's out there. And I haven't exactly. I, I knew bitwise a little bit but they're just like kind of indexing so that's less interesting to me so yeah i encourage everybody to go check uh, cosimo out and uh thank, with you. That, thank you very much